Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm Ned Skarsbrick and one of the many volunteers of Fair Mormon who help those with faith issues. These podcasts will be a series of nine episodes done by Karen Trifoletti from the I Believe podcast. Each episode deals with issues regarding how the Bible is a reliable source of truth. These podcasts are used by permission of Karen Trifoletti and the I Believe podcast group. And now, the authenticity of the Bible. Welcome back, everyone, to this installment of I Believe podcast. We're presenting today another in our recent series about the authenticity of the Bible. And if you've stumbled on this cast and you haven't seen other segments, we invite you to do so, starting with the overview. And we'd love to hear from you and even have you tweet about this. You can use hashtags like Bible Truth or hashtag I Believe Podcast or simply hashtag Faith in God. Whatever works. We're so happy to have our guest, D.M. Johnson, back with us. Today we're really eager to discuss with you specifically the authenticity of the Gospels within the New Testament canon of Scripture. We'll do that by contrasting them with some Gnostic writings and then verifying their positioning in the canon through eyewitness testimony, for which we provided some general information in the overview. Dave, we're so glad to have you here with us. Hey, I'm glad to be back. Super. Before we move into eyewitness testimony, let's just say this to set things up. So as many of you are aware, the Gospels are a huge target of atheists and the skeptical and secular community. Many just want to dismiss them as mythical or as legends that developed over time. Others like to say that they're written far too late to have any credible accounts regarding what really happened in New Testament times. We also have some who try to confuse the issue as to what Gospels actually belong in the Holy Bible. These individuals might point to uh, the Gnostic Gospels, which have been much popularized by movies and books in the culture, like the Da Vinci Code, for example. So let's start off by talking about the dates of the Gospels in the New Testament canon and contrasting them with the Gnostic Gospels, which are not in the canon. This is something that's important first as we th- as we talk about this, Karen, to to kind of emphasize how biographies were written uh, in antiquity. Some people, when they think about the Gospels and they think about the words that are there, they think, well, this is the exact, you know, if you had a tape recorder, that's exactly what was said. And, and we know that the, the sermon summaries that we have, it's not like a tape recorder. Those were genuine sayings of Jesus, and we have genuine events recorded. But there's a lot of misconceptions about how biographies were written, and, and to your point, on dates, when they were written. So one of the things that's important to look, we've been doing a lot as we go through these casts, hey, what would, what would non-scriptural accounts do? And so if you contrast biographies and we look at, uh, for instance, some of the more uh, famous biographies of Alexander the Great are written 400 years after Alexander. And mm-hmm. so uh, by contrast, uh, a really good case can be made, you know, that we have these Gospels, some people think as early as before 70, and the latest people have, you know, John at, at 90 or 95. So if we look at it and just contrast from that perspective, we have accounts where witnesses would still be alive. And just quickly, um, that case for, for being written before the year 70 is because we know that the temple was destroyed then, and that was prophesied um, throughout the Bible. And so we know that if that was the case, um, that they were written afterwards, a lot of people think, well, certainly they would have mentioned that. And so a lot of people think it was before then. But, but either way, uh, we know by contrast to these other writings that they were actually written uh, quite early in comparison. We also, um, some people will say, well, isn't it anonymous in the text, within the text itself? 
uh, Luke doesn't refer to himself as Luke and things like that. And they'll try to say, well, they're anonymous. And it's important right. to think that, you know, it was common back at the time, Plutarch, we have 50 biographies that survive, which were written by him, and he never refers to himself in the text. But people, uh, as we've talked about, they, they almost want to apply uh, a ridiculous double standard when the Bible's involved with these kinds of things. But in fact, exactly, yeah, that, that's how people did. And so even if we accept that liberal dating, uh, which, you know, you have Mark at 60, uh, Matthew at 70 to 75, Luke somewhere maybe in 75 to 80, let's say, and John 90 to 95, you'd still have eyewitnesses alive. And that's why the dates matter. Some people, they hear, well, why does it matter when it was written? It matters because if it was written, you know, hundreds of years later, you don't have uh, that eyewitnesses that would be there. And so there's an interesting story about P52. We've talked about that before, and that is the oldest piece that we have that's currently cataloged. And it's a fragment of John's gospel. And it's fascinating because when that was discovered before that, the Christology in the Gospel of John is very high of what they say about Jesus. And so it was the, the main target of the four, and people were trying to date it you know, way back late in the, in the second century and so on. And when they found it, they sent it to four different paleographers who confirmed that, no, this, this was written um, you know, in early, you know, after, after, after 100, some people will say up to 125 AD. And even one of them said, no, I think this was written in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So therefore, since it was a copy, we know that John was, was far before that. And so if we, if we stay intellectually consistent, which is a theme I try to, to do as we look at this, to say that, oh, you, well, if you read it, wrote it down 30 years later uh, would be ridiculous, you need to take a step back for a minute and say, what if we were talking to a, a Vietnam vet? You know, that would be exactly. about like the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be ridiculous at all for him to write a memoir of what happened, especially if he had a group of people and he'd been telling these, these stories of what took place. You, you wouldn't even dare say, well, you don't really know what happened, you know. Mm-hmm. And so if we think of it that way, um, to a, a vet of World War II or, or Vietnam, uh, it makes perfect sense that they could be accurate accounts. Thank you. It puts it right in perspective. Um, I think it's also good to reflect as we go through this, Dave, on some of the other prior podcast content as well. Um, these Gospels just include uh, a multitude of things you just would never make up. We talked about that a little bit before. And if you haven't seen the cast on the principles of embarrassment and enemy attestation, you might really want to check that out. Uh, we also spoke before about significant archaeological findings, which though we said they're never shared to prove truth you know, on their own merit, they do give really strong evidence that corroborates with what we have in Holy Writ of the Bible. And you know, we don't see that same kind of evidence around the Gnostic Gospels. So I think, I think that some people, most people, are at least roughly familiar with the main themes of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That is, that they center around and focus on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So let's take some time now and just dive into some of these Gnostic texts by contrast, as we talked about earlier, and some of you might be unfamiliar with them or may just find it interesting to note how different they really are. So Dave, would you first please just define Gnostic for our audience um, and then go over some passages of those Gospels uh, at a high level of content before we start contrasting the evidence that actually points to them being written at a much later date? Yeah, that, that would be good for us to do. And so Gnostic or Gnosticism comes from a, the Greek word gnosis, uh, which basically is like a special knowledge. And so the concept behind these Gnostics is that they felt that salvation came through an understanding of the true meaning 
of teachings or by obtaining uh, this special or certain knowledge. And so the Gospel of Thomas, uh, you know, is of a literary genre. It's, it's considered a Gnostic writing, and it's also what some people would call a sayings gospel. And so it consists of 114 sayings that are supposedly attributed to Jesus. And I should mention also that nobody in, in antiquity thought this gospel was actually written by the Apostle Thomas. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that people understand that. And so um, let's, let's start off by having you read uh, one of the sayings there from the Gospel of Thomas, Karen, if you wouldn't mind. Sure, sure. The first saying in the Gospel of Thomas reads, And he said, Whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. Just a comment on this, right out of the chute. From this, it seems, Dave, that what you said earlier about the description of Gnostic is at play here. I mean, it seems to infer right off the bat that the way to get eternal life is not by salvation through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, but rather by finding, quote, this interpretation of sayings. (laughs) That's exactly right. And so we see here from right out of the gate, like you say, that this is clearly a Gnostic writing. Let's go to saying 114. This is a really interesting one. I think you'll like this one. Okay, so this reads, Simon Peter said to him, Let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Mm, Well, Jesus said, quote, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. End quote. That that saying is troubling to say the very least, a significant aberration from what we really get in the pure gospel of Christ. So this seems to me like something you can't just brush by. It's, It's very noteworthy. In fact, it it seems to me, Dave, that it's almost fashionable or trendy for people to sort of embrace these alternate Gospels without really examining this kind of content. It really is. And the funny thing is that sometimes people, you know, they'll they'll try to say that the Gospel of Thomas is is right there as early as the other Gospels, and they'll dismiss this saying and say, well, that was added later. Mm -hmm. But there's no textual evidence to, to back that up. And there's also other really troubling sayings in Thomas when you read them that don't Uh, match up with what we have in the other Gospels. Don't jive. I think it would be effective if we followed the same pattern we did in previous casts then, um, where we took a look at some of the textual issues and then lay out the case for why some think this is really early writing and why others view it as, you know, having been furnished towards the end of the second century as late as 175 CE. So let's set the stage of the controversy, and then Dave will have you speak to it. The Jesus Seminar, we alluded to that in a previous cast, and they produced a book called The Five Gospels. Now, for those unfamiliar with this gathering, uh, the participants were this self-appointed group of liberal scholars that got together and got lots of media buzz back in the 90s. They had this system where they used colored beads to actually vote on whether or not Jesus uttered a particular verse of scripture that was described to him previously. So the red bead, for example, meant that Jesus did say whatever verse they happened to be discussing. Um, That might remind you, for example, of some New Testament copies that you may have seen um, where you see the Jesus' words in red, only they're recasting this based on their own speculation. The pink bead would signify to them that he just may have said it, gray that he probably didn't say it, whatever the verse was in question, and black connoted that he did not say it. So in their very unacademic evaluation, they put the Gospel of Thomas as having more red than any gospel except Luke. So that's pretty amazing. The second example is Elaine Pagels, who wrote a book called Regarding the Gospel of Thomas Beyond Belief, where she advanced some theories about her early dating of the Gospel of Thomas. So, 
And we'll put these sources on, on our website so you can check them out. But it seems that we have a date across the spectrum on this gospel. So let's analyze the reasons that some date this gospel early and contrast it with reasons which point to it dating much later than our New Testament gospels. Yeah, and we, we mentioned that we would go through this because most of the Gnostic writings, it's clear-cut. It's, it's really mm-hmm. later, and there's some different schools of thought on this. Um, with regard to the Gospel of Thomas, some of the people think it's early for the following reasons. One reason is that it's a sayings gospel, and, and some of you out there may have heard of, of something called Q, sometimes that, that biblical scholars will talk about, which actually comes from a German word that means source. And we have, most people think that Mark probably came first, and we, we see some areas there where Luke and, and Matthew use uh, some of that material. And we also have areas where Luke and Matthew have something that maybe isn't in Mark, mm-hmm. or, or maybe it is. And so this is a hypothetical source that people think may have been very early. And so some people think, hey, Thomas is a, a list of sayings, so maybe that's the case with it as well. And, and there's also scholars that point out it's not exactly like Q, but, but that's kind of the reasoning for, for some of this. The other thing that Elaine Pagels points out is that John's gospel, if you read it, um, kind of has Thomas um, in more of a speaking role than the other gospels. And so she put forth this theory that, well, hey, you know, John, John's gospel was a response, a literary response to the gospel of Thomas. So when you read a lot of the more conservative scholars, they put forth a really strong case, and, and Craig A. Evans and Nicholas Perrin uh, date the Gospel of Thomas very late, uh, after, after 170 or 175 uh, CE. And here's the reasons why, kind of to go to the other side of the evidence. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons why is that it quotes or alludes to a large portion of the New Testament, uh, many quotes and from all over the New Testament, um, it, quote, it quotes from or alludes to. Um, so we don't have any, another reason is we don't have any early material that's unique to Thomas that's quoted by any of the early church fathers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the copy that we do have, um, you know, is in Coptic. But one thing that's really interesting, and, and scholars do this kind of thing, is when you translate that into Syriac, something pretty amazing happens. The sayings don't just look like they're in arbitrary order. It looks like there may be some catchwords. Hey, this, this saying says this and this and this, and this ties to that one by these different words in there. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's really interesting is that Thomas is referred to as Judas Thomas, which is uh, an appellation that was kind of unique uh, to what we saw in the Syrian church back in, back in the late 2nd century. Uh, the other thing is that there was a student of Justin Martyr called Tatian, and he put forth a work known as the Diatessaron that was basically an amalgam of the four Gospels, and this work appears to follow the Diatessaron's ordering of things. And so, um, obviously, if you're basing something on it, it would then put it later than, than 170, 175 CE. And so based on this evidence, when I look at it, my conclusion is that Thomas was written uh, after the apostles um, and people that knew Jesus uh, had died at least 100 years after Jesus. And so if we're just being true, again, consistent, um, you know, it looks to me that you're going to get obviously more accurate information from the Gospels that we have in the canon. And some of the things that are in Thomas re- reflect the canon, but it's, it's more likely that those were leveraged from the canonical Gospels and not the other way around. And not the other way around. I think right. that's important. Well, those are eight to ten significant points to consider there. Um, it's also interesting to look at these other writings. I think it shows over and over the reasons we have the Gospels we do in the New Testament. Let's touch on the point of legendary development. I know that in our earlier cast, you know, we talked about 
the early creedal material that Paul quoted in his letters, which proved it was too early for that to point to any kind of legendary development. Uh, there was nothing in his reports that seemed like an embellishment. So let's look at one of these other Gospels so that we can illustrate to our audience the legendary development and contrast it with a report from one of our Gospels. So what if I read a few verses from Mark, then Dave, you can read from a later Gospel so we can show the difference in the accounts and let people uh, that are listening judge for themselves. Does that sound okay? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Okay, so I'll use the NIV for this read. But when they looked up, they say that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Okay, so as I read this, it's actually a pretty sober and straightforward telling of history, but let's contrast it with one of the other so-called Gospels, thought to be written later, so we can get that contrast in our minds. Dave, do you have a passage you would like to read to illustrate that? I do. Let me give a little bit of background about this uh, for those listening. So this this passage I'm going to read is, is from something that's commonly referred to as the Gospel of Peter. And it was found in the 1880s in Akmim, Egypt. And in the codex inside, there was, there was a coffin of a Christian monk who died in the 9th century, and they found this codex in there. And in there, there were several writings. We had something called um, the Apocalypse of Peter. There was also some other writings, including there was an account of, of St. Julian uh, from the Byzantine era. Uh, and there was a gospel in there that didn't have a beginning or an ending on it. And Peter appears in that gospel, and, and he narrates it. And so because of the fact that it was found alongside the Apocalypse of Peter, um, it's often referred to as the Gospel of Peter. And so archaeologists thought that that probably was the Gospel of Peter, that the early church fathers, like Eusebius and, and Bishop Serapion, had warned was falsely attributed to Peter. So people didn't think that it was legitimate or that Peter had, had written it. I want to make that clear for people. In mm-hmm. fact, we don't know for certain that it's a copy of that same Gospel they, they alluded to. But I'm just going to read for that for a minute, and you can contrast it with, mm-hmm. if you're listening to what Karen just read. This is, this is really interesting. So here we go. In the early morning, as the Sabbath dawned, there came a large crowd from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to see the sealed tomb. But during the night, before the Lord's day dawned, as the, as the soldiers were keeping guard, two by two in every watch, there came a great sound in the sky, and they saw the heaven open and two men descending, shining, shining with great light. And they drew near to the tomb. The stone which had been set on the door, rolled away by itself and moved to one side, and the tomb was opened, and both young men went in. Now when the soldiers saw that they woke up the centurion and the elders, for they also were keeping watch, while they were yet telling them the things that they had seen, they saw three men come out of the tomb, and of the two that were sustaining the other one, the other one a cross following them. The heads of the two they saw had heads reaching up to the heaven, but the head of him that was led by them went beyond heaven, and they heard a voice out of heaven saying, Have you preached to them that sleep? And the answer was heard from the cross was, Yes. <laughs> so, so here we have the tomb surrounded by a massive crowd of, of soldiers, 
two figures that had their heads go all the way up to the clouds, right. and then Jesus' head is up above the clouds, and then we have a talking cross. So it's pretty interesting stuff yeah, that you got. Yeah, really. When you, so when you contrast it back to back like that, I think, audience, you can answer for yourselves. We're taking you right to the text here, and it's just, you know, it's pretty obviously conclusive which gospel really has the legendary development. Um, I know that some people also try to say when thinking about the gospels that it's written like myth. Now, I'd just like to share a quote here from C.S. Lewis about literary, the, just the literary style of the Gospels. I should say, in the, in the way of reminder to our listeners, that C.S. Lewis was once an atheist. You know, he became converted to Christianity, obviously knew a fair bit about literature. He was such an accomplished author. Well, here's the, here's the actual quote. All I am in private life is a literary critic and historian. That's my job. And I am prepared to say... On that basis, if anyone thinks the Gospels are either legend or novels, then that person is simply showing his incompetence as a literary critic. I've read a great many novels, and I know a fair amount about the legends that grew up among early people, and I know perfectly well the Gospels are not that kind of stuff, end quote. I just love that quote by Lewis. And it's interesting to think back at our cast where we actually talked about the criteria of embarrassment. The New Testament just it's just not the way mythology reads, is it? That's right. I, I love C.S. Lewis, and he still, to this day, has such a huge uh, influence with some of the things that, that he wrote. And I want to talk for just a minute, Karen, about some of the things that would be near impossible to get right by accident. And one of those things would be getting the names correct. And this mm-hmm. some, some interesting research has just come out since the year 2002, but imagine for a minute... Um, writing a history uh, about something that happened decades ago in another country, you know, maybe back in the 60s or or 70s or something, and you're writing something about that time period in France or or in Egypt or who knows where, pick pick a place, you know, Norway, whatever, Mm -hmm, and trying to get the popular names Mm -hmm. right. And, you know, my mom is a school teacher, and she's always talking about, oh, my God, this year I got seven kids with the same name and how these names, <laughs> you know, true. change. Mm-hmm. And one thing that's really fascinating is this research that's come out on names. And what they've done is they've, they've taken all of the names from historians, from all the writings at the time, from all of the engravings, all of that evidence, and ranked them so that you can see how popular. And when you stack it up against the New Testament, it's absolutely fascinating. Love that. So in Wikipedia, if you go to look up a name, sometimes you'll see, well, do you want the poet? Do you want the athlete? Do you want the singer? They call it disambiguation. Mm -hmm. And in the New Testament, we see that as well. We see with common names, uh, they do that. And with rare names, they don't. Mm. So for instance, the most common name uh, in that era, in in that part of the geography, was Simon. And so you see Simon Peter, Simon the leper, Simon the Canaanite, Simon the tanner. There's always a qualifier because it was such a common name. Those are not accidents. Yeah, those are not accidents. And then you see other ones where it's not common and they don't do that. And, and even Jesus, you know, of, of Nazareth, who was crucified. Mm-hmm. Later we hear about Bar Jesus. There's other. And so it's very fascinating. You know, other times they'll, sometimes they'll put a qualifier of their father's name. Sometimes it might be their job or their occupation. Sometimes it may be the hometown. And so we, we see those kinds of things. And if you take them and look again, at the New Testament and the writings that are outside of the New Testament, it's just fascinating. And so, for instance, the top two names um, outside of the Gospels, 15.6% of men had those top two names. Inside the Gospel in Acts, 18.2%. 
really closely. If I take um, the Gospels and Acts, the top nine men's names uh, outside of them, I have 41.5%. Inside the Gospels and Acts, 40.3%. Mm-hmm. So you can see it's exactly uh, legitimate with things that are going on. If I take the top woman's name outside the New Testament, it's Mary. The top woman's name inside the New Testament is Mary. And so this is just more evidence mm-hmm. that shows um, in, in favor of the Gospels. You wouldn't get that right if you were guessing. And there's all kinds of other research that has come out along these lines, everything from, from the trees that are mentioned and all these different kinds of details about cities and geography that you just wouldn't know if you weren't an eyewitness to this. Love that. Love the rich con- internal consistency. Yeah. Right? Um, I know one of the common things said by the skeptical community out there about the Gospels and the New Testament in general is that the writings emerged kind of as a conversation does, you know, when you're playing the telephone game um, that we're all familiar with, because we know that many things were preserved by oral tradition before they were written down. So the argument kind of goes that just like in that game you played when you were little, you know, where you have a circle and you start to whisper a secret to the first person and they pass it on and on and on to the end person. The end message is usually nothing like what was said originally. Um, I know that talking about this in one of his books, uh, Bart Ehrman, who's probably the most popular skeptical scholar of the New Testament in the country today, and we've referred to him in the past cast, said the following. So listen to this quote. What do you suppose happened to the stories about Jesus over the years as they were told and retold? Not as disinterested news stories reported by eyewitnesses, but as propaganda meant to convert people to faith, told by people who had themselves heard them fifth or sixth or nineteenth hand. Do you or your kids ever play the telephone game at a a birthday party? Well, there it is. So as I said, I've seen a lot of skeptics put this forward, and I thought it would be good for our listeners to hear the reasons, Dave, that this probably isn't a very good analogy in terms of what really took place with regards to our New Testament. Can you speak to that for a minute? Yeah, and as you said, a lot of skeptics will will use this, but but a lot of scholars have shown why this analogy is flawed. And so first thing we need to remember is this is how Jewish people um, passed on uh, sacred tradition. These weren't trivial things that that they were relaying. And the other thing to think about is when you think of the telephone game, the, the kind of the whole purpose why the game is fun for kids to play is, is the purpose is to, ske- to skew the you message. You deliberately do sometimes. Yeah, you deliberately do it. And, and the other thing, if you think about how it's different, is in that game, it's said only once, and, and it's whispered. Whereas when we have the transmission of the New Testament, of this oral tradition, it was repeated over and over, and it was in public. It was in front of a lot of people where it could, could then be corrected. Uh, it was composed and formulated and, and memorized. Sometimes it would have a, a rhythmic pattern to it or even in a hymn. Uh, the other difference is that in, in the telephone game, you say it one-on-one, where this was said uh, by many uh, to the community. As I said, you could... You should have it be corrected. And so if you just think of things we do uh, in public, if you sing happy birthday or someone you sing or, or you get up and you state, uh, you know, the Pledge of Allegiance or things like that, and you've got a whole room full of people, you're going to get it right because you're used to saying it. It's been said before, and, and you have that corrective effect there of, of other folks being there. Uh, some people have even gone so far as to, to compare the telephone game to, to how the text is transmission was transmitted. And we need to realize that, you know, when the New Testament was in writing, and so you didn't have just one person saying something to go back. You could go not only back to that that copy, but other previous copies. It's important. Yeah, and, and other copies. And so um, scholars and scribes didn't only rely on that last thing that was said to them. So if you look at it in, in totality, it's, it's not the best example. That's not the way that, that this was transmitted. 
Thank you for that. Um, I, I know lots of times the argument against the Gospels that which people set forward to is the calling out difference in details mentioned within the Gospels. Um, some people call these contradictions, right? But but think about this. I recently read the book, Whole Case Christianity, by J. Warner Wallace. I really liked how he talks about what constitutes good evidence and how he compares it to some of the cases he actually worked on as a detective. It's a good reading for anybody that's interested. But it's quite obvious that when you think about it, that with witnesses, you do expect independent testimony, right? So you expect to have some different details or at least different emphasis by different individuals. Um, otherwise, you don't really even have independent testimony, do you? So, I mean, as Wallace points out, it would be considered collusion in a court of law if people just got up and said the exact same thing, describing it the exact same way, right, Dave? Right. And, you know, to me, this comes back to being consistent with how we treat ancient history. And so if we took, for instance, uh, the Great Fire of Rome in antiquity, uh, both Tacitus and Suetonius, they, they talk about this, but the details are very different from these historians. In fact, you, you can't even harmonize them. But no historian in his right mind would act like the Great Fire of Rome never happened. There's no way they would do that. And so it would be totally unreasonable uh, to make that kind of a conclusion. And so the Gospels are, are ancient documents with independent detail, and we would expect them to have independent detail. And so we need to treat it the same way we would uh, with these other accounts. And as we're going to see in a, in a later cast, sometimes those independent detail actually lock together and stand up in 3D and actually make a stronger case. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, there's times where you may, you may hear somebody say, hey, in this gospel it talks about one person who was healed, and this other gospel talks about two people. You know, we right now, we're sitting here, and, and if I said, hey, that time when I was at your house, it doesn't mean there's not another person here doing the sound. You know, that's not a contradiction at all. But when you talked about it, you may, you may refer to it that way. And so we also have things... Uh, if we take, for instance, uh, the burial excuse me, of Jesus by, by Joseph of Arimathea, you look at that, and even with some of these other little subtle details, you have that common core by all four people, and here's a person who is part of the Sanhedrin. They would exactly. never make that up because everybody would have, he would have been a prominent person and they could have said, hey, he's not buried. That didn't happen. But yet they say it. And so there's these kinds of uh, inconsistencies sometimes you'll see people do when it's the Bible versus the secular history. Thanks for pointing that out. I think another thing that our listeners would really enjoy hearing is evidence uh, that there, there is which attests to the fact that the Gospels are actually written by who we think they are written by. I mean, we use the word authenticity when naming our cast series, right? Eight points on the authenticity of the Bible. Now, when something is authentic, that means it's true to the events that it narrates. Genuineness, however, is something a little bit different. So if something's genuine, it means that it's written by the person to whom it's been attributed. Well, that's really important because it helps rule out rival theories. For example, that this document is a late mythical composition or whatever. So obviously, if we can show that there's some really good reasons and evidence to show that the authors are people who would have been in a position to actually know about the things they talk about, that would be huge. So Dave, would you walk us through the timeline of attestation for traditional gospel authorship for the gospels we have within the canon of our New Testament? Yeah, let, let's go through the timeline. And so if we start with those who are close to the apostles and, and move outward is, is how okay. we can do it. And so we have uh, Papias. Uh, of Hierapolis, who was discipled by John, who was, as you know, one of the twelve. So we have him in about 125. 
CE, and and he states uh, that Mark had been the interpreter of Peter, that he wrote down what Peter had preached accurately, though not necessarily in order, and he says that that Matthew uh, wrote this in the oracles they call it the Logia uh, in the Hebrew language, which we know Aramaic was was a form of, of Hebrew. Then, if we go further a little further out. Um, we have Justin Martyr in about 150 CE. And he says that the Christians possessed memoirs, he calls them, of of Jesus, which were also called Gospels. These were written by the apostles and those who were their followers, he tells us. Um, And and these tell us of such events as as the Magi, his agony in Gethsemane. Remember, we had the textual issue with Gethsemane. Here we have an early witness saying that, that that, in fact, happened. And so we have um, e- even a student of Justin Martyr, Tatian, put together the Diatessaron, as we talked about, which, which means through the four. And, um, you know, uh, it's interesting because up through the ninth century, no copy, there wasn't really a copy that anybody knew about. Um, but in, in 1888, we found out that we had a copy that, and nobody knew what it was. And, and critics had, had long time said, well... You couldn't really have the diatess. This can't be the good diatessaron because of the Gospel of John, and people, people had da- had doubted that because we had a lot of skeptics around John. And it's fascinating because it opens. You know, in the beginning was it was the Word, mm-hmm. and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and so it starts out just like John does. We also have a fragment called the Muratorian fragment, and this is in about 170, and and this is uh, in effect kind of a kind of a a Latin translation of a document that scholars think go back to about, as I said, 170. Virtually all scholars agree that it refers to Matthew and Mark um, in its initial area there. And then it starts out after that talking about Luke the physician, who it says was a companion of Paul, who mm-hmm. wrote the gospel from the reports of others. If you go read the first four verses of Luke, he talks about that, that he went and he interviewed uh, people and so it's perfectly in harmony with mm-hmm. what we know. Mm-hmm. And since he hadn't personally seen Jesus, that makes sense of what he would what he would do. We then have uh, Irenaeus of Lyons, and in about 180, and he says um, that Matthew was the first to be written. He said it was written in the Hebrew dialect, which they're referring to Aramaic there. He says again that Mark was a disciple of Peter and handed down his gospel from what Peter had preached. That Luke was a companion of of Paul uh, recorded the gospel according to him and it, it preached by him. And it says, John was the disciple of the Lord, published a gospel while living at Ephesus in Asia. So up until this point, we're now up to 180. We have these people and they're giving us essentially the same thing. You know, Mark gave us the gospel as, as it was known uh, by Peter. And we have Luke and all of these kinds of things. So if we look at it, we have a really consistent story thus far. Then if we go to Clement of Alexandria, he's in about 180. He says, Mark wrote his gospel by request from his knowledge of Peter's preaching at Rome. Again, this is the same thing we've heard. Um, Matthew and Luke were published first, and their gospels are containing genealogies. And so John's gospel is the last one to appear, and he says it was written at the urging of his friends. Then we have Tertullian at Carthage. This is in about 207. A.D. and it says that the Gospels were written by by Matthew and by John, who were apostles, and by Luke and Mark, who were apostolic men. He calls them, in other words, people who knew uh, the apostles and lived at the same time they did. And so it says again, Mark's Gospel is the record of Peter's preaching. 
and said they bore the, and he says that it bore the names of the authors of antiquity, and the ancient churches vouched for them and no others. And at this time, you know, as he's saying this, he was actually criticizing um, a heretical sect that Marcion had founded, and he's basically saying, look, ours have, our Gospels, you know, they have had the names of the authors from, from the get-go, and Marcion, of course, had taken a Gospel of Luke and altered it and took out the parts that, that he didn't like, and so that's kind of that back and forth. The other interesting thing, Karen, I think you'll find this interesting, is Celsus. We talked about him before. He's an enemy of Christianity, and it's fascinating what he says. This, to me, is, is the wisdom of God mm-hmm. when, you, when you read some of this. He says in, in one of his you know, scathing things that he's going through railing on, on the Christians, and of course he, he abuses and twists all the things, that, but, but sometimes it's interesting. We have, again, that concept of enemy attestation. He says, I have chosen these things from your own writings in order to wound you with your own weapons. And so isn't it interesting? Even an enemy of Christianity mm-hmm. is basically saying, these are your books, and he doesn't talk about any other books as, as being there. And so if you think about this for a minute, we've just walked through the, the timeline of somebody who knew the apostle John all the way out. You know, here we're, we're clear out in 207 with what we just read from Tertullian. It's interesting that we have a few things at play here. Um, the attestation we have is significant, it's early, it's consistent, and it's geographically diverse. If you go and you look at these different people and where they were saying this, they were basically on the four corners uh, of the empire at that point. And so this wasn't just one person that said it. Uh, and, and so there really is no rival tradition. This was coming from all over the empire and was attested from early on all the way down. That's a potent package, I think, for our audience to consider. I'm hoping that scales are falling from some of our skeptics' eyes as they consider this and uh, all of these casks together and then can you know prayerfully consider also the divinity of, of the New Testament Gospels. It's also interesting to point out that we have letters from the early church fathers like Polycarp and Ignatius. You know, these letters also use parallels from the Gospels. And it just seems like, again, we talked about this, but if you wanted to make something up and you wanted to get a following, you would choose Peter, James, and John, and, and maybe Andrew. But you'd never make up a Luke or a Mark as authors. You know, Luke is fairly mentioned in the New Testament. You know, you talked about the reason that that he reported on others' experiences. While he was a companion of the Apostle Paul and while he interviewed these eyewitnesses, but he was not in the Quorum of the Twelve, for example. And then when you think about Mark, Mark was basically giving Peter's account, which we know from history. But why on earth would you make up that Mark was the author? Right. 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 So, and he again is mentioned rarely in the New Testament and had a little bit of a falling out, actually, with the Apostle Paul. So if you think about that, Matthew, well, yes, he was part of the Twelve, but he would have been very low on the social ladder, so to speak. He was a tax collector. And we all know how the tax collectors were viewed, you know, back in the first century, <laughs> right. right? So there's no logical reason that somebody would choose him from the list of apostles to just attribute a book to. So with the exception of John, you really wouldn't have a case or reason to attribute these works to these men if they didn't write them. Um, you just wouldn't ha- invent the authorship because you wouldn't have gotten much mileage, frankly, out of that, that claim. So the most logical reason to have their names attributed, it seems to me, is because, as Davis expressed so well, they are in fact the ones who wrote them. Um, could you 
talk about Dave, the first person really on record who came forth and challenged the traditional authorship? Yeah, the, the first person whose name we know who challenged uh, the authorship um, was someone named Faustus. And um, Augustine, we have uh, Augustine responding to Faustus. And it's interesting to, to just take a minute and, and realize when this is happening. This is happening roughly 400. So again, we went through our timeline, clear from the Apostle John all the way through. And now it's 400 before we have someone whose name we know challenging the authorship. And that's significant. That, that would be like me uh, now challenging, hey, we don't really know who wrote the Declaration of Independence, mm. e- even though we've all known it's been, it's been passed down by attestation all the way. So that's significant, first of all, that it's that long before somebody right. comes forth and says that. And it's interesting because as uh, Augustine is responding, uh, he, says, he says something that's really interesting. The argument he uses, he says, why does no one doubt the genuineness of the books attributed to Hippocrates? And for those of you out there, if you've never heard of Hippocrates, he was a famous uh, physician when a, when a doctor goes and takes the Hippocratic Oath. That, that's, who, that's the Hippocrates we're talking about here. He basically saying, why does nobody doubt that? And then he says, because there is a succession of testimonies to the books from the time of Hippocrates to the present day, which makes it unreasonable. <laughs> you know, he basically just says, this is unreasonable, you know, either not or hereafter to have any doubt on the subject. And then he says, how do we know the authorships of Plato, of Aristotle, of Cicero, of Varro, and other similar writers, but by, and he calls it, the unbroken chain of evidence. Mm-hmm. So he basically points out this double standard stuff that we've been saying, look, does anybody do this with other works? We, this has been attested all the way throughout, and he calls it an unbroken chain of evidence. Love that. Um, well, I wanted to just quote something I think is very telling, too, from Justin Martyr. And this is the quote. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. End quote. Um, this just seems to show just how these documents were treated by the early church. And it shows that, you know, for the Gospels to be read as scripture in weekly services, they had to have been extremely highly regarded and known very well by Christians throughout the world. Um, it's, I think it's good, too, for us to remember what was touched on in a prior cast, that Polycarp wrote a letter in which he referred to well over a dozen books from the New Testament. I mean, there really are all kinds of different evidences coming together that support a biblical Christian faith. Um, Dave, I would like to end our cast with a scripture I think is fitting since the cast is talking about eyewitnesses, and this comes from 2 Peter 1.16, and it's this, quote, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty, end quote. I think it's really important for us to state that there's such good reason for us to have faith in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Bible. Thank you so much again, audience and Dave, for joining us on the special edition of the I Believe podcast. Thank you, Karen. If you like this podcast, you can help support it by subscribing to it in iTunes or writing a review. Post a link on your blog or Facebook page. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not represent those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of Fair Mormon. Thanks for listening.